Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of Theology Nara. I have on the show today Thabidi Anyabuile, who is a pastor and author and um, has become kind of a prophetic voice in American evangelicalism. And uh, he's been a, yeah, he's been a, he's he's currently a pastor at Anacostia River Church in uh, Washington, D.C. He has also served, um, He's also served in the, as a pastor in North Carolina, in D.C., and also the Cayman Islands. He's the author of several books, uh, many books. If you go on Amazon and type in his name, um, tons of books will come up. Uh, the Life of God in the Soul of the Church, The Gospel for Muslims, What is a Healthy Church Member, The Decline of African-American Theology, and Faithful Preacher, among others. He blogs regularly at the Front Porch in Pure Church. Um, yeah, Thabiti... Um, <laughs> we've, we've never actually spoken in person before. We've corresponded on social media and I, I reached out to him recently and just said, man, I would love, love to have you on the podcast. He's got such an interesting story. Um, he might be more associated for some of you. You might know him as kind of a member and uh, maybe a leader in the gospel coalition. He's been a, a part of um, together for the gospel um, but has more recently, and we get into this in the conversation, kind of um, focused more on his own local church uh, context, which is in an urban area in D.C. Um, and Thabiti, dude, this dude is loaded with wisdom. <laughs> I mean, this guy's been around. He's a sharp thinker. He's got loads of experience. He's got a gentle, kind heart. And he's got a lot of stuff to say about the race conversation in American evangelicals. And that's what we focus on. We do talk about critical race theory, which I know is super debated in the church today. I think most people who talk about it don't know, don't understand it, quite honestly. And we, we talk about that to some extent. We talk about race relations in the church. We talk about racism. We talk about uh, all kinds of things that um, a lot of people have been talking about, uh, and a lot more people need to talk about in the American evangelical church. So I'm so excited for this conversation. He's going to say stuff you're not going to agree with. Some of you, other things he's going to say are going to make you want to jump out of your seat and scream for joy. Other things, some of you might be like, no, I can't believe he thinks that's true. And that's why I love, love, loved this conversation. I love having raw conversations about raw issues with very interesting, thoughtful, gracious, Christ-loving people. And that is uh, Pastor T, as he's more commonly known. If you would like to support this show, Theology and Raw, if this show has provoked you to be a better Christian, to be a better thinker, if it has ministered to you in some way, then join the growing, then I invite you to join the growing number of Theology in the Raw supporters. This is a listener-supported show, and it's not just... Um, uh, supporting the show doesn't just mean you support the show. It means you become part of the Theology in the Rock community where we have lots of interesting discussions. There's um, premium content like once a month only blogs and podcasts that I release for my Patreon supporters. So patreon.com forward slash Theology Nara. Um, or you can look in the show notes to see where you can go to support the show for as little as five bucks a month. Really, really appreciate your support. Thank you to all of you who are supporting Theology in the Raw through Patreon. All right. Without further ado, I want to welcome to the show for the first time, the one and only Pastor T.
All right, hey friends, welcome back to another episode of Theology in the Raw. I am here with uh, Pastor T. Uh, Pastor T, thank you, <laughs> Thabiti. Uh, thank you so much for being on Theology in the Raw. We were bantering offline a little bit, and I just said, man, I've, I've been, I've, I've been aware of you and following you to some extent for the last like 10, 15 years, and so I can't believe, uh, can't believe you're on my podcast here, man. Thanks for being on Theology in the Raw. Oh, brother, it's a joy. And, and as I mentioned to you, you're, you're one of the most cited folks uh, among our elders uh, in the church as we're thinking about things and wanting to hear good perspectives, man. So thank you for what you do and for how you've been helping us to disciple Christians here in Southeast D.C. Yeah, that, that's that's I mean, I can't tell you how much of an honor that is. I I, um, I, I love my I have a I'm not a pastor, never been a full time vocational pastor. I've been an elder, been on preaching teams and stuff. But my heart has always been in the church, and to to know that this podcast is helping Christian pastors in in the trenches of ministry, especially in a place like DC, which I know you guys got a lot going on, dude. That's we can close in prayer now, man. That's that's an honor that this has been helpful. Um, yeah, why don't you just, just for people that maybe don't know you, or even people that do, why don't you just give us a snapshot of of who you are, where you come from? I know you got an interesting testimony, man. So that this could take the whole podcast if we wanted it to. But uh, yeah, just tell us, give us a little snapshot well, of who you are. When you say this could take the whole podcast, that's a very polite way of calling me old. I appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate that. Wise, uh, wise. <laughs> so look, uh, country boy born and raised, North Carolina, small town, North Carolina, um, and grew up in a nominally Christian home. Um, went off to college back in 88, and um, my freshman year bumped into uh, some Muslims on campus who were um, on campus engaging students, attending lectures and things of that sort. And I was like a, a moth to flame. And so my sophomore year converted to Islam, uh, was a practicing Muslim, something of the campus saw really uh, for you know the rest of my undergraduate days until um, one year during Ramadan up early for the fast, reading the Quran, and a number of contradictions just flooded into mind, just things that the Quran was admitting on the one hand, but denying on the other. And that sort of led me into a bit of a theological crisis. I uh, spent about a year bouncing between agnosticism and atheism. And uh, at the end of that year, through the preaching of the gospel in a church just a few miles from where I, I now live and serve, um, uh, preaching of the gospel from Exodus 32. Uh, God um, saved my wife and I that Sunday morning uh, wow. and uh, brought us to faith in him. And so I've been walking with the Lord about 25 years or so now, been in the ministry for about 20 years hmm. and served at church plant in North Carolina, down to the Cayman Islands for eight years, served at um, uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in D.C. for a number of years. And for the last almost six years now, had the privilege of pastoring Anacostia River Church. Um, in Southeast D.C., a, a church the Lord allowed us to plant um, about six years ago. And right now working to try and help start and revitalize churches in neighborhoods like ours across the country through something called the Creek Collective. And so trying to give the, it's the fourth quarter for me, uh, headed, headed toward glory, trying to give the rest of uh, life and energy to seeing gospel work revitalized and started in predominantly black and brown neighborhoods that are neglected and vulnerable. Wow, gosh. Wow. Yeah, that, that's yeah, a, that, there's a lot there. So when you said you con, you converted to uh, uh, Islam, was that the nation of Islam or is that so, traditional? So I was an Orthodox Muslim. So part of my introduction, so the men on the campus were from the nation of Islam. Um, but I had at that point as a freshman in college read enough 
um, African-American history, read Malcolm's autobiography, things of that sort, to know that the Nation of Islam was was a cultic group um, okay. and not Orthodox Islam in any sense. And so when my interests were piqued uh, in Islam, uh, it was to Sunni Islam that I that I turned and, and converted. Wow. So, yeah, I, I'm familiar with it largely through Malcolm X's uh, autobiography. Um, man, that book, golly, that oh. <laughs> I read. <laughs> I read that back in uh, early uh, mid two thousands, and uh, you know, I grew up in traditional, just non denominational white evangelicalism, and and uh, that that was the, my that book. Just, I mean, it, it shattered my categories. I, I I became just fascinated with Malcolm X as a just as a, as a person, like he he's, I don't know. I, I wasn't planning on going here, but his he was one of the most brilliant, um, just thinkers, maybe leaders of our of our day. I think. I mean, I don't think people know that, especially in Christ, Christian circles. We he just gets pegged as kind of like a a worse version of MLK. Is kind of what I grew up. That's all I knew about him, and people would mock him and stuff. But this dude was when he was in prison. He like read through the dictionary like twice just to expand his vocabulary. And he had, he was so articulate and man. And, and then to see him like come, yeah, come to grips with his involvement with the nation of Islam and, and uh, man, that's anyway, I, you, you, oh, no, Ma- Malcolm is Malcolm is a, 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 a poignant picture of the kind of human capital that is threatened and destroyed in the sort of racist system and history of this country. And at the same time, a, a, a picture of the tremendous resilience um, and, and overcoming mm. um, that can happen in, in persons' lives. And uh, that, that is so much of the, the African-American story to sort of face this ma'afa, to face this Holocaust of slavery, Jim Crow, all that good stuff, and to have so much human capacity mm-hmm. destroyed, stunted, suppressed, and so on. And yet, um, you know, through God's providence and so many other ways in which the Lord has worked in the history of the country and, and of African-Americans to overcome, mm-hmm. right? And to persevere and to be resilient in the face of that. And so Malcolm, uh, as Ozzie Davis put it, is, is our black shining prince of, of manhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he is a, a, a fierce intellect. Yeah. Um, and if all you if, if, if you were introduced to Malcolm as a demagogue, yeah. Then you really don't know Malcolm, right? Oh, yeah. And and all you know are his Nation of Islam years, and you don't see his evolution even as a Muslim, right? Yeah. Um, and and the sort of universalizing turn that he takes, then you really don't know Malcolm. Right. Um, and right. and I think you know in American letters and American writing, the autobiography Malcolm ought to be included, yeah. and and everyone who considers himself well read should have read the autobi- autobiography of Malcolm X. Well, I saw it was rated one of the most important books of the 20th century. This is right when I finished my PhD. I did nothing but reading theology for like 85 years. You know, that's all I did. <laughs> that was one of the first non-theological books I read, and yet it probably shaped my theology in ways that I didn't didn't predict at all. It was, so I, I, after reading that, I went in and, and started reading a lot of MLK and kind of seeing the contrast between them, which wasn't as stark as some people make it out to be where I was fascinated is, you know, Martin Luther King, it's well known, you know, his, his um, individual moral character was imperfect. Um, you know, he uh, probably drank too much, probably had 
several girlfriends on the side and and this is stuff that he admits and um Malcolm X his character was impeccable there, there's a line in the in the movie um what's it called just X I think um where the the feds are trying to they're trying to find something on X and they they make a passing comment and I think it might even be in the book. They said, man, compared to King, this guy's a saint. Like they couldn't find – he was so morally virtuous um, that they couldn't find anything on him. But, King, you know, King, they could find stuff on him. They could talk to some girl or whatever, this, that. And, you know, uh, and, and, not, and please don't – I'm not like downplaying the obviously the tremendous work King did. But, but X, I don't know. And, pe- you know, people peg him as like this more militant guy. He believed in self-defense. Maybe one evangelical Christian who wouldn't have the same perspective. <laughs> you know, he was not militant. Exactly. Um, I think for me as a white evangelical, the biggest takeaway for the book is probably how well-intended, truly well-intended white people in X's life were still very problematic in the way of thinking. His school teacher who loved X, but when X you know, as a little kid, and he's like, I want to be president. And the teacher is just real like, wow, it's really sweet. You probably make a great president, but it'll never happen, you know, like you're black. Mm-hmm. And so find something, you know, find something else to pursue. But it was a, it was a well-intended white people that ex- exposed for me how even that can be problematic. But anyway, I, I don't want to keep. No, that's good. I, th- I think that's right. Um, so so here's, here's the thing. Um, I often chuckle when I'm when I'm watching um, white evangelicals talk about liberalism versus conservatism. And yeah. oftentimes, if African-Americans somehow are, are brought up in that conversation, there's this great lament that African-Americans vote overwhelmingly Democratic, for example, which yeah. in the sort of white evangelical landscape means liberal. And I, I'm just like, OK, that's just evidence you don't know black people. Right. Because those categories, liberal and conservative, don't really map neatly onto us. Um, and, and we are not, as a people generally, we're not enamored with white progressives and white liberals as if they get it, right? So, so we run into the same kinds of problems, different, different shapes sometimes and things of that sort, you know, across the spectrum, right? Um, because, because our defining sort of reality historically has not been political philosophy, liberal or progressive, it's been blackness. Right. And it's contact with whiteness. Um, and so, you know, Malcolm is, is gosh, he's just so in so many ways that autobiography is just so typical of African-American experience mm. when we're bumping into white progressives or white conservatives or things of that sort. So for Malcolm, there's not much difference um, in terms of the impact on his life between the, the sort of anti-Garveyites who burn down his house and kill his dad. Mm-hmm. Right. And these sort of progressive and liberals mm-hmm. who pat him on the head and say, oh, it's nice. You probably would be a good president. But, you know, you know, black, black folk can't be that. Right. right. Um, this sort of constraining, suppressing, soul destroying, potential destroying experience of that mm-hmm. is sort of across the board. It, wow. it could be more or less virulent, but it's across the board. Right. And so that's been so much of. Um, African-American history and experience. And, and it, again, this is why when you when you read Malcolm's story, there's a large part of you that goes, this is my story. Mm. And whether or not you share his convictions in terms of religion or, um, you know, political stridency or what have you, whether or not you fall down in the same place, you go, 
oh no, that's a hero. Right. Yeah. I don't agree with everything he says, but that's a hero. Yeah. Uh, here's a guy who figures out how to be unashamedly black, mm-hmm. you know, all the time mm-hmm. um, and to sort of reject. Um, yeah. The, the sort of racism that comes in both conservative and liberal forms for a pretty a pretty sort of mainstream ethic of self-help and, and independence, you know, um, in, in black key. And and almost everyone who reads that goes, that's a hero. Don't agree with every point, but that's a hero. And so much of that has been my life. And that's why he's just this magnetic character mm-hmm. figure, even even decades after his death. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll say in terms of he and King is, you know, you point to Malcolm's sort of uprightness. Malcolm is a believer, right? Malcolm is a true believer in initially the nation of Islam and, and um, you know, the leadership there. Uh, and even after he learns out the secrets um, of the nation and, and he has this theological crisis, he's, he's a believer in Islam, right? Uh, and so he's a genuine convert to Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he does live with this sort of legalistic, you know, uh, uprightness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and has this impeccability that too is compelling. And again, when I converted to Islam, that's part of what drew me to it was to see that same kind of discipline in the character of, of persons like that. Of course, he's, he's not a brother in the Lord, doesn't believe in Jesus. Uh, I, I don't think he's gone to meet God as his savior. Um, and so um, it grieves me to say it. I, I think he's lost in his sin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there, there are remarkable differences between he and a Dr. King, mm-hmm. uh, not just in terms of their, their sort of moral lives, um, but also in terms of their eternal lives. And mm-hmm. as Christian folk, uh, we even as we celebrate a Malcolm as a kind of hero, we we also need to keep eternal things in view. That's good. That's a good word, man. That's why I want you to keep going. But why don't we? I want to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, let's keep going. I I um, and we didn't plan like with the topic, the direction, uh, and uh, but I would love for you to um, I would love to hear your thoughts on, and this is gonna be a really general question in, on purpose. You could take it however however you want to go with it. Um, Help us understand um, the race conversation specifically as it's happening or not happening in in even American evangelicalism. Say in the last couple years, maybe, but obviously a lot of stuff's been kicked up the last year. Um, help, help, just pastor our audience, me and my, our audience, through what has become a real tense and volatile conversation. I talk to pastors all the time. They're, they're like, my church is just divided over this stuff. But where two years ago it wasn't wasn't divided at all. Yeah. No, I, thank you for that question, brother. Uh, I, I, I mean, I agree. I, I don't think there's a conversation. There's lots of accusation and recrimination. But I don't think there's a whole lot of let's sit down and talk about this kind of conversation. And uh, the reason for that, I think, is about five years ago, um, there's a significant turn in the culture uh, of the country as a whole, but in, in predominantly white evangelical culture, um, particularly. Up until about five years ago, I, I think there were a lot of folks trying to sing Kumbaya and hold hands and, and you know, have reconciliation conversations that were sort of key to the gospel abstractly, um, theologically, um, not really practically. I mean, there, there's some some stellar, you know, exceptions to that. I think of Latasha Morrison and her work with Be the Bridge and, and things of that sort, right? So there's some people who've been on the ground trying to do this work for a long time. Mm-hmm. But about five years ago, I think there's this marriage that happens between a kind of largely white male resentment, 
um, the kind of populist uh, energy that that sort of springs up around um, then candidate Trump's campaign and subsequently President Trump. Um, and the sort of um, those things sort of dovetail with the rise of a kind of conspiracy theory ethic that's, mm. you know, in the church, in the predominantly white church in particular at, at large, large levels. Um, so you get the marriage of that resentment, contemporary and historical. Um, you get the rise of sort of conspiracy theories, which rob the church of the ability to think well about hard things and to think patiently um, uh, about hard things. And you get the rise of this sort of populist, often racist um, rhetoric and 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 uh, leadership from a, a Donald Trump and President Trump. And those things land very hard on the heels of a, a, a long string of police shootings, citizen shootings, other things where we're seeing on video African-American men and women, boys and girls being killed um, in, in very dramatic and, and, and jarring traumatic fashion. Right now, what, what happens, I think, that prevents the conversation is from the evangelical to white evangelical perspective in these conversations that you, you have pretty much fundamentalists inside of evangelicalism, the John MacArthur's and, and the like, who grab the reins of an anti-justice um, kind of perspective uh, and drive that perspective into the church as a wedge. Hmm. Uh, not to say, hey, listen, we think there's some things that are wrong. Can we talk about it in a constructive way and, and, and use our convening power to pull together people from different perspectives and to really model how to have this conversation and to push toward the truth as we see it? But they drive it as a wedge issue uh, on the level of if you not agree with us, then you're anathema, a, a pox on your house. And of course, um, beneath their perspective is the, re the wholesale rejection of things like systematic racism, the wholesale rejection of the notion that there's any appreciable racism uh, in, in our day, the rejection of the notion that there's unfair treatment of police officers to um, black and brown communities. Um, so this was, I would say, their way, veiled in theological language, mm -hmm. of simply taking a, a retrograde position on mm. um, racial relationships mm. um, and, and to do it in such a way as to literally divide churches and to divide Christians uh, into, these, into these camps. Mm. Uh, so that's why we're not able to have the conversation is because from the start, it, it's broken. Um, with this sort of divisive, tribal, uh, us against them kind of frame, uh, and from and, and along with that, it is it is shaped by um, just this horribly um, inadequate, mm -hmm. to be generous, understanding of the issues, race, racism, the history, law, society, how these things are are impacted. And the demonizing of efforts, um, usually secular, mm -hmm. uh, efforts to address that history, the demonizing of those efforts, and then the assigning of those demonized positions to faithful brothers and sisters who, in the body of Christ, are trying to have the conversation constructively. Mm -hmm. So that, so that you know, it's a poison pill, and and folks are slandered and libeled, and 
uh, it's impossible to to have a, a good conversation at at least at the level of yeah. uh, kind of national figures interacting. And and I'm really saddened, Preston, because um, there's hardly a week that goes by where I don't hear from um, faithful faithful pastors uh, and faithful Christians in local churches from the west coast to the east coast, from north to south, whose churches right now are are divided, um, who are are being split, where uh, leaders are under assault, where members are. Um, alleging certain things that just aren't true, all because they've been infected by basically this this conspiracy theory inside the evangelical church, which is this kind of anti-critical race theory, anti-intersectionality, is the biggest threat to the gospel ever kind of perspective. And that's all it is. It's a conspiracy theory um, built on the back of a straw man um, standing on top of sand. I, it's just, it, it's ridiculous. And it's, it, it has a distinct smell of sulfur, brother. Wow. Uh, I think, I think the enemy has had his hands in this in a very destructive way. Gosh, there's so much there, man. Um, can you unpack the, and this is something, cause I, I really am approaching this from a, a, a student, a learner. I'm watching the discussion. Um, it's not my, full-time gig, you know, I, I, it would take me years, years, years to even get my arms around something like critical theory, critical race theory or critical theory. I've got a buddy, Ed Yuzinski, who did a PhD basically in, well, is in American studies at Bowling Green University. And basically it was a PhD in critical theory. And so he, he's helped me kind of work through it. And what I love about him is, is he's so nuanced and so careful and so thoughtful and so well-read that even talking about critical theory or critical race theory as as one thing is just shows that yeah. you're don't know what you're talking about. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, exactly. But can you, yeah, for our audience and for me too, I mean, I, I um, can you maybe unpack the concerns that the anti-critical theory form of evangelicalism is raising like what, what are, why are they so, why would they say this is the greatest threat to the gospel? Um, yeah. Cause I'm sure you've had to get inside of that kind of the other side. And I would love for you to unpack that. And then how would you respond to that? Maybe. Yeah. Let me, let me maybe suggest that um, there are two or three concerns that okay. seem to me to be uh, animating different actors in this okay. discussion. So there, there are some folks who are, are driven to this discussion and their uh, opposition to CRT because they are concerned for um, the people that they know uh, and, and, and by extension, people that they may not know uh, who seem to have left the faith, hmm. being drawn away by um, what they're what we call CRT, CRT kinds of concerns, right? So they, they, they see sort of deconstruction and other things happening uh, in the lives of people. They see folks leave the faith and they go, okay, CRT did that. And, and so therefore I need to oppose CRT. So that's one motivation. And like a this slippery, is, kind of a slippery slope in a sense. I mean, yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and this is what a Neil Shinby would say is, is his motivation, okay. right? In large part. Um, there's another motivation, um, not um, that, that feels to me fairly different from that motivation. And I think it's the idea that CRT is a religion that is that is contrary to the gospel, that its basic worldview and outlook is at several points uh, a threat to the gospel. So the, the, the sort of racializing of the world, 
um, the suggestion that the world may be divided into oppressor and oppressed groups right. uh, and that the oppressor group can never be justified. Uh, the oppressed group is justified by their grievances or, mm-hmm. you know, you know, variations of, of comments in that way. And so there are folks who kind of take that that sort of worldview approach to CRT um, and think of it as a, a religion contrary to uh, contrary to the gospel. Now, I think allied with that group is is maybe a third group um, who, again, you know, uses the language of theology, but what they're really talking about is politics. Um, and this is a group of folks who are just politically concerned that some of the things that fall under the banner of CRT, as they understand it, are, are just not good for society in the country, right? Um, and so whether they would put, say, defund the police, you know, in that category, or Black Lives Matter in that category, these are groups in their mind that are associated with CRT, whose positions on, say, policing or, or certain public policy seem to them be unwise, unhelpful, destructive, uh, also contrary to the Bible, and so that that needs to be rejected. And so I think you get all three of those kind of motivations driving people in this sort of anti-justice, anti-social justice, anti-CRT kind of conversation. That that third one would they would they say this is a neo-Marxist kind of uh, movement that's going to yeah. lead to, you know, <laughs> where that ends, has led to with all these other countries, which ends up killing yeah. millions of people and, and so on. Um, how would you, yeah. I do see that come up a lot and I'm one, I just get so allergic to just labels. Um, so when I hear Marxist, whatever, I'm like, what do you like, do you know what Marxism is? Have you read Karl Marx? Like what, what exactly are you saying? Cause I just, and this happens on the, from the left and the right, these slogans that I just, even something like white supremacy or on, on the left or, you know, c- cultural Marxist mm-hmm. on the right. And I'm just like, let's just back up and let's uh, tell me exactly what you're trying to say rather than give me a slogan. So um, right. uh, oh, shoot, I was going to ask a question, but I, yeah. <laughs> okay, well, so how about this? Would you, um, are, is there any of those three kind of maybe concerns that you would like resonate with, but then point out some inadequacies or, or is there any, is there any part of the, of the concern with CRT that you're like, no, that's a good, that's a good concern to raise if that's a fair question? Well, I, I think. I think these can be good concerns to raise quite apart from CRT. Okay. Right. So, so there's nothing in my view inherent to CRT that sort of produces these concerns in some inordinate way. Right. So, so we ought to be concerned about anybody leaving the faith for any reason. Right. Uh, that's, that's an appropriate Christian concern. Um, we, we ought to be concerned about any sort of rival claim to, um, salvation and eternal life or rival claims to the gospel, the Bible's basic teaching about life and, um, and, and eternal life. Right. So, so any of these things just principially are things that Christians ought to sort of have a concern for. For me, the question is, are are these accurate, accurate representations of what's really happening? Mm. And are they accurate representations of CRT? So for example, take that first group that says, hey, I'm really concerned about people leaving the faith because CRT. And and my question is, wait a minute, those people you're talking about, have they actually read any critical race theory? <laughs> have, they, have they actually been engaged in that? Are, are they actually self-consciously saying, I am now deconstructing my Christian faith and on the way out of the faith because I read something in CRT or, 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 
is the trouble really that they have run into racism mm. in your church and, and in this sort of evangelical sphere, and that has caused a negative reaction mm. to the church and the gospel, right? So CRT might have sort of entered into the conversation in some place, but usually it's entering into the conversation because it's intended to redress racial inequity, right? Mm. And mm. and in, the, in a context where the church has been historically and overwhelmingly silent about racial inequity or participate participants in it, in causing it, okay, there's a huge vacuum there. The problem isn't CRT as such. The problem is these folks have had encounters with racism inside the church where they rightly thought it should not be mm-hmm. and where they rightly thought there should be some help in addressing it. And they were failed on both counts. And it's that notion, that, that form of the Christian faith mm-hmm. that they have been rejecting mm-hmm. and it's not CRT's fault. And so when, when these folks sort of joust with CRT and make light of the, the experience of racism and injustice in predominantly white evangelical circles, they're just compounding the problem, Yeah, right? They're just sort of proving the problem to that person mm-hmm. who maybe wrongly is saying, because I've had this experience, I need to leave this faith. And I, and I don't think they see that. I don't, I don't think they see that. And so CRT yeah. becomes this whipping post. But really the problem, the prior problem, mm-hmm. is racism in the church, yeah. right? It's longstanding problem. Or take the second group, you know, who, who wants to say that um, CRT is a worldview and a religion that, that needs to be rejected. Um, the first thing I want to say is most of the folks who are writing and saying that are, are dealing with a complete caricature of CRT a complete caricature of CRT and they are and they are replicating the first mistake that we just talked about they are not putting forth positively constructively uh, an agenda or proposal for dealing with the real world problems of racism and whatnot um, they are they are eliding that they're sliding over that simply to be uh, to take a position about what they are against right and so they 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 recreate the same problem the first group had at sort of another theological level. And insofar as they're dealing with a caricature, they're not, e- they're not even dealing with CRT and, and, and what it's for. So critical race theory gets its start, late 70s, 80s, Derrick Bell and others as founders. Um, what they are really dealing with in its origin, uh, and, and the, the listener needs to keep in mind that it's, it's, not, like a, it's not a social theory writ large, hmm. right? This is a discipline inside of law. It's a legal discipline. What they are really dealing with inside of law is this question. How is it that we could have civil rights gains from the Voting Rights Act and Brown versus Board, et cetera, and two or three decades later, the 70s and 80s, be suffering such significant civil rights losses in the rolling back of those civil rights gains, uh, in the sort of retrenchment of um, programs into an anti-civil rights kind of stance and effect. Uh, how is it that the Reagan revolution brings about, right, these sort of rollbacks on progress and equality, right? That's what they're struggling with. That's what they're trying to answer. And and what, what we're saying and what CRT is saying writ large is, okay, we need a different set of spectacles with which to view the law. And here are some ways in which we have to sort of approach the law in order to understand it properly and to respond to it. Number one, we have to understand that it is the law that has created the construct of race itself, right? So our problem with racism is a legal problem. 
not just in the not just in the explicit old laws of white only this and colored only that, but also in the operation of race neutral laws that produce um, racial disparities of various sorts, right? So your law doesn't have to be Jim Crow racist in its language mm-hmm. in order to have racist effects in its operation. So that's that's one premise. The other premise is, listen, that that racism is endemic to the country. That that in the entire society, every aspect of the society, um, racial prejudice, racial bigotry, racial favoritism, etc., has been baked into the walls of this thing, hmm. right? Uh, and so the and so the default posture is not let's assume everybody's equal and and everybody you know has a fair shake. If that's true, then the default posture ought to be one of uh, ought to be a critical posture. Yeah. Of examining, looking for, interrogating, so on and so forth. Um, and we could we could go on, with, you know, five no, or six such in that I, way. I didn't but, want to cut you off. I, yeah. I wanted to um, have you unpack. Like when you said even the race, because I've heard this before and I can't get my mind around it. And, and I'm not <laughs> I'm not a political scientist. I'm not an economist. You know, I, I don't have these aren't the disciplines that I. You know, my American history is even not not very very thorough. I've been reading too much theology my whole life. <laughs> um, but like, yeah. So, you know, obviously we don't have Jim Crow type laws, but you're saying even these kind of quote race neutral laws have something built into them that is that is contributing to the problem of keeping uh, specifically black people from um, from flourishing, maybe economically or, or even just. Um, so, so to make that real concrete, let me give you an yeah. illustration. It's okay. a well-worn illustration. Many folks will know it. Um, think, for example, about the the sentencing requirements during during the war on drugs mm-hmm. uh, for cocaine use. That that if you um, were were caught in possession or distribution of crack cocaine and sentenced for that, it was eighteen times the length of a sentence for powder cocaine. Now, those laws don't say anything about black and white people. But guess what? Guess who was using crack cocaine and guess who was using powder cocaine, right? So powder cocaine addiction got treated like a medical problem by and large with treatment. Crack cocaine addiction got treated, got criminalized mm-hmm. and got treated like a crime problem with prison. That breaks out pretty pretty neatly along racial lines, mm-hmm. right? Even though those are race-neutral policies, uh, well, it's it's sense. it's more divided across socioeconomic, right? So even if it was like eighty percent people busted would be of color, twenty percent white, that the common denominator would be socioeconomic, not explicitly race. But you're saying just right, right, am I, if I right there, is that a good way of framing, or am I missing something? Even by um, well, no, I think I think surely class is an aspect of that, but um, in terms of sort of preferred use, if you will, yeah, I think that breaks out fairly strongly along along sort of um, racial lines. But okay. so let's switch let's switch the example. Let's talk about marijuana use. Um, we, we know that as a proportion of their sort of population or group, mm-hmm. black and white folk use marijuana at at almost essentially the same okay. rate. But when you then look at the, the stop, search, arrest, prosecution, uh, sentencing rates, vast, dis- mm. vast disproportion between black and white at every place in the criminal justice system, from a police stopping you, searching your car, 
arresting you to a DA deciding whether or not to prosecute you uh, or to plea you out and, and what sentence you get, vastly, vast disparity. Now, again, nothing on the books that's sort of saying, hey, we're going to treat black people this way and white people that way. It is a race neutral policy. Huh. But it does not have race-neutral effects in the system, right? Yeah. And this is what we talk about when we talk about systemic racism and, and systemic biases in this way. Um, and, and this is why for these biases to, to play out in terms of actual impact, one does not have to be self-consciously racist and, and personally racist in personal attitude, right? Mm-hmm. All one needs to do is what the system does. And, and systems have a way of creating behavior of guiding and circumscribing behavior. They become cultures in that sense. Uh, And that's what we're living in. And this is what uh, a proponent of CRT would say, okay, this is why racism is endemic to the country. Hmm. It's baked to the walls. And unless you take a critical posture to it, you simply replay these systemic injustices. You simply replay this racism that's baked into the wall. Hmm. Even if you as an individual aren't necessarily, in terms of your individual attitudes, actively expressing a racist attitude toward black people or, and, or and Hispanic. That's, and that's the difference because most white people I know, I would say including myself, when I hear racist, I think that explicit, that uncle at Thanksgiving that's telling all these black jokes and if a black person moved in the neighborhood, he would be like really upset, you know, like he, he if he talked to somebody at the grocery store, black checkout, you know, he's going to treat them different than a white person. Um, that that can really just like explicit, like he actually is explicitly racist but you're what you're saying is there's an an implicit form of racism that's kind of built into the system that that is not being addressed or maybe is only recently being even considered or maybe it's crt that's that's kind of trying to get to the roots of some of these things i I think that's right i I think the best framework that i've seen for this is a framework that duke kwan pastor Mm. here in dc pca church in dc very thoughtful wonderful brother uh put together because I, I think it, it's helpful because in many of these conversations, when racism is brought up as a term, that that the people are operating with different definitions mm-hmm. and, and speaking of it on different mm-hmm. dimensions. So Duke in this framework, if you imagine a four by four kind of grid across the top, he's got four categories. He talks about uh, the, it's, these are social dimensions of racism. So he talks about an internal uh, dimension, which is attitudes and beliefs. That's where a lot of people minds go when they think about racism. But then he talks about an interpersonal dimension. So now he moves to, to behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Actual behavior that mm-hmm. devalues mm-hmm. or subordinates uh, or excludes other people. Then he talks about institutional. And this is where we talk about either formal or informal systems of policies, customs, norms that again are, are sort of assigning advantage or disadvantage based upon race, ethnicity, and culture, and so on. Mm-hmm. And then fourthly, he talks about internalized, um, the, an internalized dimension of this. This is sort of conscious or unconscious right. acceptance of these attitudes, beliefs, behaviors against your own people, right? So this is internalized racism there. Uh, so this is the kind of racism that black people show toward black people, Hispanic people show toward Hispanic people, so on and so forth, colorism, all those kinds of things mm. in this internalized self-hatred, right? Mm. So those are those are kind of the social dimensions, right? And when we're talking about this issue, we have to be careful to sort of name which dimension we're discussing, 
right? Because this is how we pass each other. So if I talk about institutional racism, and I'm thinking about policies and customs and norms of the sort that we were just talking about from our criminal justice system. Yeah. And somebody comes along and says, well, I'm not a racist. It's like, OK, that's two different conversations. Yeah. We can talk yeah. about whether or not you are racist uh, and that could be helpful to you pastorally and spiritually. But actually, that's not going to solve the problem of the institutional issue where we need an institutional level analysis, where we need to think about policies and customs and norms and their impact, not just their intent, but their impact on people groups and whether or not that's happening in a systematic way. And let me let me say one of the word right there as a former social scientist. When I, when I talk about something being systematic, I'm not just saying it belongs to a system like a legal system or an educational system. I'm talking there in terms of the the effect is non-random. The effect is systematic in the sense that it will produce this outcome ordinarily, systematically, in a non-random fashion. So if you you were to throw 10 people, uh, 10 black people, 10 white people, 10 Hispanic people into our criminal justice system, uh, if that system was really blind, then what you would see are sort of a set of outcomes that are that are roughly equal for each of those groups, mm-hmm. right? Uh, in that sense, it's it's non-systemic, it's random. But if you know you picture this on a curve that um, you know the the curve for white Americans is pretty flat at level say call it level one, and then for Hispanic Americans it sort of goes up over time to level five, and for Black Americans it it goes up it shoots up to level ten, and that's just happening consistently and predictably in a non-random way. That's what's meant from a social science perspective mm. about something being systemic, right? Yeah. And that's what we're getting with our systems here. It is systemically producing non-random results of disparity yeah. for people of color. And that's what needs to be addressed. Dude, this is like seriously one of the clearest explanations. I've, I've had a lot of these kind of conversations and half the time I'm trying to get my mind around. This is super helpful and I hope it is for the audience too. Um, how, how would you... Um, let me just try to formulate my question. If I and if I word things off or even offensively, let me know. But like, um, wh- where, because c- on the cons- I guess for lack of better terms, I don't love these categories. But the conservative argument is usually like, at, at best, they'll acknowledge some systemic um, issues. You can't go through hundreds of years of slavery and Jim Crow and lynching and. <laughs> All this stuff and they say, oh yeah, that's gone now and has no lasting effect. I don't know anybody with any kind of social scientific awareness who would say that that has no lasting effect. Like it ended in 1968, you know. Um, but they would say there's a huge issue of like personal agency and you know you have South Chicago and stuff going on there that has to do with individuals sinning too and children being born to single moms and fatherlessness and all these things. How, how would you? The, 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 I guess my question is the relationship between the systemic structural issues and personal agency. How would you, how would you, yeah, address maybe both of those? Yeah. Would you say it's a both and, or it's way more a systemic thing that's causing bad decisions on the personal side? Or yeah, I, I think the best treatment I've read of this question is William Julius Wilson's book, More Than Just Race, okay. short book. Easy, easy book. In some ways, it's a summary of much of his decades of sociological research and, and uh, economic research. And in, in one of the chapters, later chapters, he takes up this question because he was often being challenged by this very question 
uh, as he was conducting this research over the years of how much of um, say the outcomes we see in, in African-American life, how much of that is attributable to um, what what sociologists at the time were talking about a sort of culture of dysfunction, mm-hmm. right? And how much of that is attributable to these sort of larger macro fa- factors and systems and things of that sort? And I think Wilson is right when he says, yeah, both of these things matter. Um, but from a from a social science perspective, at least, what the research is telling us is what matters most are these larger macro and system kinds of issues, right? And let me tell you why I think that must be the case. It's not that individual personal agency doesn't matter. So I, I want to I want to I want to emphasize that. And in fact, I want to go a step further and say we can point to examples where, by the use of agency and God's kind providence, many individuals have escaped some very difficult circumstances, mm-hmm. right? So, so there is a there is not only agency, but there's an efficacy, there's an effectiveness to agency uh, in, in many circumstances, but not all. And I would argue, but not most. And the question is why? Well, one, one simple response would be to say, because some people aren't trying or haven't tried the right thing. I don't actually think that's true. I, I live in the poorest neighborhood in Washington, D.C., and what I can tell you is I see folks taking a bus to go to work, working really hard to try to make ends meet. Yeah, maybe they've made some bad decisions here or there, but they're not lacking effort, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and they're, they're working two or three jobs. They're getting jobs as they can, uh, et cetera. But here's, here's what, I, what else I see in my community. I see a lot of young African-American men and women uh, who have now submitted their 400th application mm-hmm. for an entry-level job but they've got to check the box or they've got to declare they had some criminal background history. Mm. And what the good folks over at, at, um, at prison fellowship will tell you is again, evangelical white organization. So, you know, not biased. What they will tell you is those folks who are leaving our, our system of incarceration, returning citizens back to the community, face thousands of barriers, governmental policy barriers, to getting back into the workforce, getting back on their feet. And until we sort of address those barriers, then then the overwhelming number, right, mm-hmm. are gonna have their ability to thrive and flourish curtailed, mm-hmm. you know, by that, by that system. It's just another illustration of the systems are bigger than the individual and the systems press in on the individual. And the systems, in many cases, sort of delimit what the individual can do. And oh, by the way, if it's an individual who is not starting from a blank slate, but actually born in certain certain circumstances of of lack and need and poverty and brokenness, they're not starting at zero. They're starting at negative 10, negative 20, negative 100. So they've got to overcome mom and dad's addiction. They got to overcome mom and dad's housing instability. They got to overcome mom and dad's spotty employment record just to get to zero, mm-hmm. to get a start, right? No. Um, and so I think many people have this idealized notion that someone is born and they're born without a context and they've got mm-hmm. this clean slate and now they've got a chance to do all the great things that people are free to do you know, in this world, in this society um, and pursue the American dream, not realizing that actually nobody's life functions that way, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? No, <Yeah>. Nobody <laughs> is born that way uh, and enters the world that way. And unless we sort of want to, if we want to have a just society, we've got to attend to those injustices at the starting point 
and across the lifespan. And we've got to sort of try and work for uh, a system that really is equitable. And we don't have one. We've never had one. Um, we've got one that's better than a lot of other places in a lot of countries. Praise God mm-hmm. um, for his providence. But we're working for a more perfect union. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we need to take that to heart, particularly as Christians who believe in a real fall um, and believe in a real depravity. Yeah. Yeah, that's helpful. I, I, I do have a question. In um, You know, when I hear your name, Pastor T, uh, (laughs) to me, my mind goes, you know, Gospel Coalition, Together for the Gospel, which is, I think is, was that started by or co-organized by John MacArthur, who also has authored this critique of social justice that that seems to really much clash with basically everything you're saying. (laughs) Um, Yeah, where are you at in your kind of evangelical... um, identity is maybe the wrong term or whatever. Like, are you still part of those communities or how, I mean, I, I, how would the SBC or gospel coalition respond to everything you're saying now? Would they be very sympathetic or, um, have you kind of moved into a different kind of subcategory of evangelicalism? Yeah, I, I, this is probably the first time I've said this publicly, but I don't regard myself as an evangelical any longer. Um, this is not my tribe. Uh, it, it became clear to me after, um, in, in 2015, 2014, after Mike Brown was killed and, and the string of, of killings that happened there, that I, I was sort of in a space where there were a lot of people that I agreed with in terms of our formal theological commitment, but we were sort of miles apart in mm-hmm. terms of our sort of understanding of the social and political world and, and, what, and what should grow out of that theological commitment. It, it seems really clear to me that there are people who believe in an evangel but have cut that off from the ethics of the Bible. Um, wow. And and I really want to live in a space where people hold um, to the good news of the gospel uh, and walk in the good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do. Mm. So we need an evangel and an ethic that come from the, from the Bible. Uh, and I think uh, I look up and I see that there are people that I agree with on the ethics, but we don't share the same gospel. Mm-hmm. And I see some people who formerly I, I hold the same gospel with, but we don't agree ethically. Uh, and I'm just sort of looking for that tribe of people with, mm-hmm. with whom I have both. Um, it feels like a, a different world to me. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, if, if, if I'm to zoom back 15 years ago, then someone like my dear sister, whom I, I have just come to love to pieces, though I've never met her. Um, someone like my dear sister, Beth Moore, would be yeah. vilified in certain circles that I that I traveled in. I've been in rooms where her name was used as a byword, and I'm ashamed that I didn't I didn't challenge folks um, when that when that happened. It, it can't happen again around me. I mm-hmm. tell you that. Um, and so she would have been vilified and I would have been in a room with a John MacArthur having fellowship and John. John's a lovely guy. I, you know, on a personal level, I love John, but um, we are miles apart on what, what we think the gospel demands regarding justice. Beth emerges as this lioness of, <laughs> of, of gospel and justice and truth and righteousness because she cares about those things and cares about people, right? Not because she's gotten any more book deals, she's got any more notoriety, and she didn't need those things, right? So I'm watching this woman who could have stayed in Texas doing her thing with women um, and, and enjoyed being Beth Moore for no upside say, you know what? 
this is wrong and that's wrong. And I'm going to speak out about how we're treating women and how we're abusing little kids. And I'm going to speak out about, you know, racial matters and justice and acquire this real prophetic stance in the best sense of the word um, and be vilified by by these same guys who claim to be gospel guys right. uh, who seem not to know the gospel um, as it as it applies to how you treat women uh, and, and care for the vulnerable. So I rock with Beth all day long. Right? <laughs> um, and other cats who, who whom I love and, and we disagree theologically or politically doesn't mean I hate them. I don't. Right. But we 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 have a sharp disagreement um, there. I'll let them go their own way and I'll I'll by God's grace chart my own way, a different way and direction. Now, one, one thing I also want to say here, since this is the first time I've talked about this publicly, is when I talk about stepping away from evangelicalism, I'm not talking about stepping away from from men and women who themselves are evangelicals, who are dear to me, who are friends to me. I have a high view of loyalty in friendship, mm-hmm. um, and those folks continue to be dear to me. Um, they, they don't necessarily line up with John or line up with me, for that matter. Uh, what's important to me there is the relationship and the friendships, which uh, I maintain and hope to maintain, even as I sort of say, no, actually, in terms of this this movement called evangelicalism, I'll let other people invest their life there. I'm yeah. going to go see if I can serve communities like my own. That's awesome. I, you know, that yeah, the, the term evangelical is so tricky. I, when people ask me, are you an evangelical, I my first response is, what do you mean by that term? You know, because like... <laughs> There's, because I've heard people say they're like, well, from if I use the term evangelical myself, it means I believe in the gospel, the authority of scripture, the totality of the scriptures. You know, it's because I'm an evangelical is why I reject Christian nationalism, why I reject many other things that are are you know right at home in, in other evangelical circles. So, but, but then some people would say, well, that's not you're not evangelical then because that is part of evangelicalism. It's embracing Christian nationalism and Republicanism and, and all these things. And I'm like, well, if that's evangelical, then yeah, I guess I'm not. It depends on your definition. I've also had some uh, charismatic brothers and sisters uh, say, you know, they're charismatic, not evangelical. So even that they're seeing evangelical is almost like non Pentecostal or something. I don't know. So it, it, the term is just, I don't find it particularly helpful anymore um, because if you or I say evangelical, it's somebody else. Like we're just using the term so differently. Um, so I, yeah, I hear you saying, yeah, you're you're rejecting a certain form of cultural American evangelicalism as it's taken shape. But the 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 heart of what created evangelicalism, the gospel, authority of scripture. I mean, obviously, it's it, you're you're <laughs> still. Yeah. More passionate about those things than ever, uh, but you're not disconnecting those with the social implications yeah. and demands—not even implications, but the demands. Um, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think that's spot on. I, if if we're going to use like David Bevington's quadrilateral, then, yeah. then I would say, yeah, I'm an evangelical. I would check those boxes in that theological sense, and, and in that sense, I would say I'm actually more evangelical than most people who who proudly wear the name because that fourth quadrant is activism. Hmm. Um, and that's the very quadrant that a lot of evangelicals, particularly those with fundamentalist backgrounds, um, most betray uh, is, is that activism quadrant. Hmm. The, the one bit of sort of historical evangelicalism that, that I think I've come to rethink uh, or to understand better is the sort of pietistic strain 
of evangelicalism, which which creates this strong inward subjective mm-hmm. approach to the faith. And that I think has a has is a big factor in sort of cutting out the ethical mm-hmm. uh, demands of scripture in people's conception of the Christian life. So if evangelicalism is personal relationship with Jesus mm-hmm. and a very subjective inward um, kind of approach to, to the Christian life without a view toward love of neighbor, okay, then that part of evangelicalism I can't rock with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I'm with I'm with you there. <laughs> I've often been made to feel almost like not made to feel pur- purposely, but unintentionally, like because my um, my personal relationship with Jesus. I don't even like that because. It may be personal, but it's not private. And sometimes people use exactly. the term personal in, in terms of my individual, private, me and Jesus. Yep. But that's just not, that just clashes with the very public, very political in the true sense of the term sure. um, necessity of the proclamation that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Like that, that is a public, dangerous, very political statement from which yes. the whole ethics the countercultural ethics of the kingdom flows. Um, <clears throat> I've been wanting to ask you this this whole time. Um, I think it was in 1999 or 2000, 2001, when um, the book uh, Divided by Faith came out. Um, I think for a lot of even white evangelicals, it was kind of a whoa, like it was kind of an eye opening book. Um, uh, Divided by Faith and the Road to United by Faith. And I think since, if, from my vantage point, since say 2000, in the last 20 years, there, there's been a, a growth of, you know, racial reconciliation movements and, and, and multi-ethnic churches. And that's in some circles and the circles I run, and that beca- has become almost very sexy, you know, to have a multi-ethnic church, which is great. Um, and I, and I'm all for that as long as it's done the right way where there's true integration, not assimilation, you know, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, have you seen as you as we take this whole conversation and as you look back in the last twenty years in evangelicalism? Do you feel like, well, maybe maybe you shouldn't use that term now. <laughs> the American Church. Um, do you see progress? N- n- neutral, like nothing, and other things really has actually changed, or do you see regress um, in terms of how the church has not just talked about the race conversation, but actually um, uh, tried to integrate this? conversation into its own ecclesiology. Um, and again, I'm, I'm kind of going on, man, I know a lot of people now compared to like 1990s, it wasn't a thing, but now there's a lot of people making efforts to plant multi-ethnic kind of churches. Um, but maybe that's not as exciting as it looks on the outside. I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I wonder if we've hit the high watermark for multi-ethnic ministry in churches. Um, hmm. I, I, I really wonder at it. I, I don't have an answer for it. But what I think the last five years has shown, at least, is that, um, you know, multi-ethnic churches have been um, efficient at producing assimilation. They, they haven't been uh, effective at producing deep reconciliation, mm-hmm. right? So that in many of the churches, reconciliation looks like sort of high-level platitudes about, you know, Christ being our identity and, and, and you know, the same gospel and things of that sort. But the division we're seeing in churches right now over these last five years mm-hmm. is really revealing how shallow that's been, right? Wow. So, so to the extent that there's been some reconciliation or progress in that, I, I don't think it's been deep. 
I, I think it's maybe been an inch deep and a mile wide. But what we need, even if it's an inch wide, is mile deep reconciliation, some deeper work uh, in this area. Uh, so I think I think I'm not pessimistic. I, I think I can point to ways in which there's been progress, but um, I've been chastened in terms of my expectations and my hopefulness. Um, and and the, the question has become a little bit more complex for me, uh, and and particularly since coming back to the states coming to a 92, 94% African-American neighborhood, coming to a, a, a fairly poor and, and neglected neighborhood in many respects. Um, the question of multi-ethnicity has become more complex for me because most of those churches are not located in my neighborhood. Hmm. At best, they're hood adjacent, which is not really a solution to folks who are actually in the hood, right? Hmm. Um, and so many folks have remarked over the years, and, and I've come to appreciate this, this concern more deeply, is that with a lot of the multi-ethnic work, what we're seeing is a kind of resource and talent drain hmm. from black and brown neighborhoods into predominantly white spaces. And we're not seeing the sort of same kind of movement from predominantly white spaces into black and brown neighborhoods under black and brown leadership. Um, and so there's a kind of talent drain. And hmm. Um, and, and folks who find themselves in that space, predominantly white evangelical spaces, often find themselves de-skilled for returning to communities of origin and ministering to communities of origin with sensibilities um, for that community. And uh, I think that's been a real phenomenon. Uh, and I think that that means then that what we're calling multi-ethnic isn't very multi-ethnic in terms of it producing a cross-cultural competence mm -hmm. and producing a kind of cross-cultural, cross-class concern for neighborhoods just a, a mile or two away. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I, you know, I, I think in many respects, this this phenomena has had has meant progress in some ways, at least in terms of co-locating people uh, for shared worship and uh, relationships. But it hasn't meant deep reconciliation of the sort that weathered the last five years well, uh, and in some respects, it's meant uh, a kind of talent drain or resource drain on communities that, that desperately need uh, investment, not divestment. Oh, that's good. Do, do you think it sounds like Trumpism has exposed a lot of <laughs> problems within the greater evangelical church? Would that be, I mean, you've alluded to kind of the last five, five years being pretty significant. Um, yeah, man, it's been weird, dude. It's been weird. You hear people. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, people that I would not expect it from, you know, will talk about some things going on. And, and yeah, I don't, I, I, I use the term conspiracy theory a lot. I try not to, again, it's another slogan. I don't want to just slap on people. But man, I'm like, you don't really believe that, do you? <laughs> right. Right. It's weird. Weird, weird is the right word. Weird is the right word. Yeah. Can and, you, and I think. And I think exposed is the right word, right? So Trump didn't cause this stuff. No. Um, this stuff long predates Trump, right? I think he exploited some things and worsened some things in that exploitation. Um, but in that sense, Trump is not the problem. Uh, in that sense, some some other things have been laid bare uh, that are the real problem that need to be addressed. Hey, I've taken you over an hour, man. I could I could go another, but I want to respect your time. Do you have any like last words? In particular... I'm thinking of Christian leaders. Um, let's just say they're a white Christian leader. 
Maybe they're younger um, and they're like, man, I'm resonating with a lot of what this guy's saying. I, I want to be, I am socially aware. I want to be even more. I want to look at my blind spots. What can I do as a white Christian leader who does want to be, who does want to have a more holistic gospel and, and view on, you know, the gospel and justice issues? Yeah. I, I say, first of all, I praise God for the 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 brothers, the white Christian leaders uh, who are already leaning into these things and endeavoring to be faithful. Um, I know you can feel like you're alone sometimes, but but you're not. The Lord has a faithful people uh, out there. And so I just want to say keep going. And, and those who are thinking about sort of leaning into these issues um, and uh, trying to minister, I, I would say a, a few things. Number one, count the costs. Right. Um, you, you need to be prepared to lose your job and you need to be prepared to uh, lose 25 percent of your church. Hmm. Right. Um, and so that's 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 actually happening in a lot of places right now. So count, count those costs. Number two, pay the costs. It's more important that you love your people than that you keep your job hmm. and, and love your people looks like teaching them the truth um, lovingly and leading them graciously toward the truth. And um, you wanna be committed to a revolutionary patience in doing that. And uh, you you want to be committed to paying the costs because we have to stop protecting our people from their Bibles, right? So uh, a, lot of, <laughs> a lot of what the Bible teaches our people aren't getting, right? Um, you know, you've probably got a congregation full of people who spend a lot of time in the gospels and in the letters but have never been in the prophets, mm. right? And never had the prophets rightly preached to them in light of Christ. And so, um, you know, I think Swanson's book, Rediscipling the White Church, um, required reading. I would commend that to you um, and to, to um, serve your congregation out of much of what he recommends there. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, count the costs, be willing to pay the costs, take the long view, uh, lead with your Bible, you know, teach teach the word of God line upon line, precept upon precept. Recognize that your people, if, if they're affected by what we've been talking about here, whether they're on the left or the right, they have a hearing impairment. Mm-hmm. So anytime they hear you emphasize something that sounds like individual responsibility and agency, that sounds conservative to them. So they hear conservatism and they fill in conservatism. Or anytime they hear you talk about racism or systemic injustice or those kinds of problems, that sounds liberal to them Mm -hmm. and they hear liberalism and they fill in liberalism. So you got to recognize that as you address these issues, you probably need a new vocabulary. Don't, don't be lazy with the vocabulary, define your terms as my brother has done in this podcast so often uh, today, define your terms, define it from the Bible as best you're able and just put their noses in the book. And, and if they come up kicking, you know, ask them why they're kicking against the goes, they're not kicking against you. They're kicking against the book. Um, against the Bible. And so uh, give them the whole book and love them well mm-hmm. and try to lead them to uh, a full expression of the Christian life. Got That's going to be very good. It'll be for your joy. That's a good word, man. You you are a pastor. Man. <laughs> yeah. It's my um, joy. <laughs> where, where can people find your work? You got a website, part of a group. I know you, you guys do a lot of blogging, write articles and stuff. And yeah, they don't need to find me, man. Uh, I I would say go to your church's website, listen to your pastor, listen to his sermons, and <laughs> plug in with him. And uh, and and I, and I say that I say that in all seriousness because I think part of what I'm seeing is there are people 
who are believing online personalities that they don't know over the pastor that they have known for 20 years, right? And and that's part of what's messed up about what's going on right now. And so I would say, hey, listen to your own pastor, click in with your own leaders there, enjoy their ministries, act as if there is no internet, uh, and, and really be local in that sense. Now, if you really wanna find something that I'm passionate about and, and wanna learn more about, then go to the thecretecollective.org, uh, C-R-E-T-E collective.org, uh, learn about what we're trying to do to plant gospel churches in neglected and vulnerable black and brown neighborhoods. Uh, we'd love to have your prayer, love to have your support there. Um, but um, I'm just more and more, the older I get, um, the more convinced I am that the best stuff that's happening is happening in our local churches. And uh, and so to plug in there and enjoy Jesus with your covenant people. Thanks for so much. Thanks so much for being on the show, Pastor T. And we got to do this again, man. Hey, man, we'd love to. Thank you for the privilege, brother. Yeah.